Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee, and I'm very excited today to have back on this program for the second time in the last number of years, Thomas Moore. Before we get to his formal introduction, Banyan Books acknowledges that although we have people joining us from all over the world for these live streaming events, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Our guest today, Thomas Moore, is the author of Care of the Soul, a bestseller on the New York Times list for almost a full year. Since then, he has written 30 books on bringing soul to personal life and culture, deepening spirituality, humanizing medicine, finding meaningful work, imagining sexuality with soul, and doing religion in a fresh way. In his youth, he was a Catholic monk and studied music composition. He has a PhD in religious studies from Syracuse University and was a, unif- in a, was a university professor for a number of years. He has been a psychotherapist for over 40 years, influenced mainly by C.G. Jung and James Hillman, who was his close friend for four decades. In his work, Moore brings together spirituality, mythology, depth psychology, and the arts, emphasizing the importance of images and imagination. He often travels and lectures, hoping to help create a more soulful society. Today, Thomas Moore is with Banyan Books in conversation about his new book, The Eloquence of Silence, Surprising Wisdom in Tales of Emptiness. With compassion and insight, Thomas Moore offers a compelling case for an easier, lighter way of moving through life by experiencing the peace, calm, and openness of emptiness. Through ancient and modern stories, Moore gently shows that our constant multitasking may not be getting us anywhere, and that emptiness is not a lack, but an invitation that can be our greatest teacher. A daily awareness and appreciation of the quiet spaciousness in our world and our own lives is not a retreat from reality, but a rich and full welcome to all that is most meaningful and real. 
If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you can visit his website, which is thomasmoresoul.com. Banyan Books community, please join me in a very warm welcome for Thomas Moore. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you, Ross. I'm very happy to be with you today. I understand that uh, you have a, a connection not only with Banyan Books, you've, you've been to our shop in person for a number of events over the years, but with your, with your music and with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, yeah, so it's quite a while ago. Uh, I was invited by the orchestra to uh, join them for a performance in which I sat in a, in a armchair on stage with the orchestra. And between pieces, I read selections from my books. But also on that, uh, on that occasion, they had a, a professional chorus of, I think it was 12 people, really expert singers. And they sang some of my choral compositions that night. And, uh, you know, for a composer, it's, it's wonderful to have a performance of your work because you usually hear that music in your head and it's wonderful to hear it with your ears. So I've never forgotten that moment. And I've been eternally grateful to the orchestra for that occasion. Oh, wonderful. Now in this, in this book, which is also very wonderful, um, I appreciate it very much and it hit me quite deeply. Um, in the introduction, you write that emptiness is not a popular idea in modern life, which wants to fill any sign of ignorance with information and stuff the world with new products. Then you go on to say that we can find so much liberation in our daily lives by including emptiness in everything we do that I consider it the primary doorway to meaning. Can you tell us a bit more about how emptiness can be this primary doorway to meaning? I have felt this for many years. I think that's why I finally wrote this book. It's not something that just came to me. Uh, I feel that one of the most important things we can do in our lives is to allow some, some uh, gaps in activity and in talking. I say in the book that we use too many words and I feel that's the case. Uh, a little silence goes a long way. And, uh, there are simple ways of doing this. For example, uh, just recently I went to a doctor and sat in his, uh, his office and sat in the waiting room. And there's a television going on the, toward the ceiling and there are magazines there to read. But, but consistently for many, many years, I've gone into situations like that and I just sit. I don't do anything. I don't read. I don't watch whatever video is being shown. I just, uh, and I don't worry about it either. I'm not trying to complain about it, not, not at all. I just want to go in and sit. And some people, when I'm sitting, will hand magazines to me, you know, like there's something wrong with me. I think that's one of the things we feel in the, these days, that if you're not doing something, there must be something wrong with you. And... Uh, so any, my, my point in this book is that it's okay to be empty at times, to, to, uh, to sit silently, to, uh, to not be doing things, to allow yourself maybe some time in the day to just, uh, uh, just let life go on and not be part of it. Right. 
And, and like you're mentioning about being in the waiting room in the doctor's office, I guess there are opportunities for us throughout our busy lives to find those times of silence and stillness. I think they come every day. And so that could be a time of practicing your emptiness if you want. If you See, the thing is, if you have this concept in your mind that's in your imagination, then you're you're able to actually do it. If you if it's not in your mind, if you think every if you're unconscious about this and you think every moment has to be filled or there's something wrong, then you won't be allowing any of this emptiness. And that emptiness can be calming, and it can allow you to have thoughts that otherwise you might not have. It even allows you to notice the feelings you are carrying with you, that if you're busy all the time, you may not pay any attention to them. And I know for me as this creative type who has to come up with ideas all the time, that this is also a good opportunity to to let thoughts come. And I, I think it's in the empty moments that I get my ideas. And you know, I've written lots of books. I don't think I could have written them without some emptiness. So emptiness leads to to more expansive creative thinking then? It does. I think it really does. It, uh, uh, you, you, under, you understand that there are things happening inside you and in the world around you. Um, this is another idea related that's very important to me, that, that we can be inspired. We can, I mean, artists talk this way. They talk about a muse. Well, I think that's a very real thing, a muse. That means that, I don't mean something flying around in the sky what, or in the air. What I mean is that there is something that, there, our experience is that something comes to us. An idea comes to us. It, we don't manufacture every idea we have. They come to us. And uh, i tell you one poet who was very good at talking about this was Emily Dickinson about having, she would talk about a visitor coming to you with an idea. And uh, you don't want to say no to that idea that's coming to you because no matter who you are, no matter what kind of life you're living, you need to be inspired. You need some idea to come and say, well, why don't you try something new? Maybe you should get a new job. Um, why don't you travel a bit? Because that would be just the thing for you right now. You can be inspired constantly, but you can't, hear those inspirations unless you're quiet. So the emptying is very important for receiving. This is a word, by the way, used by the shakers, the shakers of uh, especially people in New England who were, uh, uh, who were wonderful people who built these beautiful buildings and furniture, but also sang uh, beautiful hymns. They had certain people chosen in their community especially to be able to hear the inspiration when it came. And they were honored people in their community. So it's that model that I'm talking about. If you can be quiet and still, you will be inspired and you, then you have some material to go forward. There's a distinction, isn't there, between this positive emptiness that you're talking about and a, and a different kind of emptiness that people might feel in their lives that they might equate to like a depression or feeling like there's no meaning or purpose. That's why I had trouble getting a title for this book <laughs> because a lot of them sounded pretty negative. 
You know, if you said how to be empty, you know, uh, you think, well, I don't want my life to be empty. It's empty enough. Yes, there is. Uh, the word does speak to uh, in a negative way, uh, saying that we don't have what we need or we feel vacant and you really want you want uh, a richer life. Uh, so they're opposites. I think they relate to each other as opposites. But what I mean by that is that when you are feeling empty, and that feeling can come along, like in a depression, when you are feeling empty, that's a good time to try out this positive emptiness. It's like you go, what we say in the psychology I work with, we say go with or go into the symptom. Any symptom you have, any problem, issue, Go into it. Don't try to just apply its opposite. Go into the symptom itself. So if you're feeling empty in your life, that is a clue to find some fruitful emptiness, to find, to find some space that can give you um, a deeper feeling of your own presence, uh, of who you are, and maybe even help you feel more alive. So that's how those two things, I think, can relate positively. One of the things I really loved about this, this book is that you, you referred to the Sufi teaching stories of Mullah Nasruddin a number of times. Um, and what we're just speaking about here reminded me of, of one of those stories, which was you titled How Many Tigers, where Nasruddin goes okay. hunting for tigers. It's on page 75. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Shall I read it? Please. Okay. One day, the leader in his village asked Nasruddin to go hunting for tigers. Nasruddin felt he had to go, but didn't want to. When he returned, his friends asked him, how did it go? Excellent, he said. How many tigers did you kill? None. How many did you encounter? None. How many did you see? None. Why do you say the hunt was excellent if you didn't see even one tiger? When you're hunting tigers, none is plenty. So that's a, that's a story that I think really applies to many things that I, I use that phrase now in my daily life. If uh, Someone asked me about, uh, I don't know, of, uh, let's say, making trips to the store. I like going shopping, but, you know, none is plenty sometimes. You don't have to always go and do things that are, that maybe especially at a time you don't feel like doing it. In other words, uh, the idea is that a lot of times in our lives, it would be good not to do things because none is plenty. Um, you don't have to do everything. You could stop doing things you really don't like. Although notice in the story, he went hunting even though he didn't want to. There are lots of times when we do that. There's so many things we have to do we don't want to. And uh, sometimes I think we have to just go out and, and realize that you don't have to have success all the time. You don't have to get, get what you're looking for. You can come up empty, and that's good. And just remember this line then from the story, none is plenty. 
I really love how you, one of the things you remind us of in your commentary on this story in the book is um, that sometimes the goal is what keeps us moving forward on the journey that and and by not achieving it it actually keeps us moving in the in the right direction yes absolutely uh, yes this is a big issue because a lot of people uh, are goal centered you know they have goals in what they do i remember once i was invited to give a series a tape series for business people and i i went to i'm trying to remember where i was i think it was toronto and uh I, uh, I sat there in the studio and the first thing I said was, it's not a good idea to set goals. And immediately the director came over to me and said, you can't say that. This is, this is a business tape. We're all about setting goals. So I had to try to find some way to say what I wanted to say without saying a bad thing about goals. But now I can say that um, I learned this from Carl Jung, who is a great source of, of inspiration and wisdom. Um, he said that the goal is not something you want to achieve. It's something that keeps you in the work. It's like it's a, it's a fantasy to have a goal. It's in your mind, and that keeps you going. But it, you, don't, you don't have to actually achieve it. And I think that is one of the points of this story. You don't have to achieve the goal. And I ended this passage, by the way, this section, with a line from... Uh, the famous poem by Kavafi uh, about uh, Odysseus uh, going on his journey, trying to re return home from uh, his journeys and uh, to Ithaca where, he, where his wife was waiting. And at the end of the poem, Kavafi says, Ithaca has given you the beautiful voyage, but she has nothing more to give you. That's so, that's so interesting, you know, in other words, Odysseus made his trip. He wanted to go home, and that kept him on the sea and going through all of these challenges all the time. But uh, the Ithaca, that's the job of Ithaca, to keep you going. And that's the job of a goal, to keep you moving. But the purpose of the goal is not to give you a very specific outcome. Another another fantastic Nezruddin story that I, I really laughed out loud when I read this one was the empty plate. And that one's on page 13. I wonder if you might share that short story. Sure. With us. sure. Yes. I've been thinking about this story for many, many years. Nazruddin was, <clears throat> excuse me. Nazruddin was having dinner with a group of friends at the home of a wealthy and powerful civic leader. The host was obviously competing for attention and watched Nazruddin closely. The servers brought a platter of large juicy melons for dessert and the two prominent men ate theirs with gusto. But then the envious host took his plate of melon rinds and when Nazruddin wasn't looking, piled them on Nazruddin's plate. You're a glutton, he said to Nasruddin. Look at all the melons you ate. But Nasruddin pointed to his host's empty plate and said, well, at least I didn't eat the rinds. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's a great story, one I've, I've often thought of. And uh, it, uh, 
it, 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 you know, it lets us know that um, sometimes when we are feeling empty, um, it's not, it's not real emptiness. You know, there's something going on there that life itself may be uh, in a way kind of playing with us. And where we feel empty, really life is not as empty as you think. And if you look around, you might notice, uh, you might have a different angle on the emptiness you feel. I feel this as a writer. Um, I've written all these books and some of them, a lot of people have read. I mean, millions of people have read Care of the Soul. But some of my books, nobody has read, I think. <laughs> At least it seems that way. And so that's empty for me. You see, in a, in a way, as a writer, not to have readers is empty and it's not pleasant. Although what I've had to do is come to grips with that. And uh, I remember recently I had a long conversation, a deep and really meaningful conversation with my, my agent, my literary agent. They're usually known to be pretty hard-nosed uh, financial guides, but my agent really helps me out as a writer at times. And so we had this heart-to-heart -heart conversation where he was telling me how he was telling me how important it is not to be successful all the time and not to expect it. It's successful in the sense of sales, but to realize that at this point, people are reading my books gradually over many years, there'll be many readers and it will really help their lives. And so I have to have faith in them. I mean, I needed to be coached by him to feel okay about certain books not selling very well. But you see, that's emptiness. And I think what he's trying to get me, he was trying to get me to feel was that it's okay to be empty at times. That, that what you are planning, what you're hoping for is taken away from you. And, uh, uh, you know, you don't get the blessings from life all the time. You get some, sometimes things are taken away or you get deceived. And I think this, the role of this character in the story, the businessman who puts the Ryan's on Nasruddin's plate, as, as kind of nasty as he is, um, he's doing something too that can be valuable. That uh, especially for a virtuous person to be told Lyra Glutton, um, uh, that's okay. And it's part of this whole emptiness thing that it's sometimes it's not going to feel too good. Thomas, you've been working as a, as a psychotherapist for over 40 years and as a lecturer and, and teacher role. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the story of the empty carriage, um, I really love that. And, and I'll, just, I'll just, there's a couple little snippet quotes from your commentary on that story that I wanted to share. You said, many spiritual leaders do not understand the paradox whereby the best leader is a good follower, the best teacher a good student. And then you go on to say, the emptiness of learning means that you, the teacher, full of information and skills, are not the focus of your students. And then a little later you say, the teacher points towards knowledge and is not the origin of knowledge. It seems like such a vital thing to remember for anybody who's in that role. I'm wondering if you can tell us more about how the student and teacher can hold this in their relationship and work together. 
This has been very important to me for most of my life because I've been teaching all my life. I started out teaching, you know, first grade, second grade in school, and uh, then universities and graduate schools. And, and I have a lot of feelings and thoughts about teaching. And one of them is that it's so important for the teacher to be silent at times, to be able to listen to your students and even listen when your students are gonna have something important to say. Can I just refer, I'll just very briefly tell that story that the rabbi was in a carriage, it like it must've been like a hundred years ago, in a carriage and uh, he noticed that there was a lot of noise behind the carriage. So a lot of people out there making noise following the carriage. And so he asked the driver, what's going on? And the driver says, the people want to follow holiness. And so he said, well, I do too. So he got out of the carriage and followed the empty carriage. I think that's a beautiful, very inspiring story. And it's related to what we're talking about, that it's it's not the person, it's not the teacher that is important. It's, I guess you'd say, what you're teaching. That's really important. And I feel that often. I, I quote a lot of other authors in my work, especially authors from very long ago. And I don't do it to, to support my argument and anything like that. I'm, I'm doing it to honor those people who have come before me, who devoted their entire lives to working out some ideas that I think are rich and valuable. So I want to get out there and and celebrate them, get behind them. I don't want people to be focusing on me. I'm not the important thing there. And I don't mean that in a false humility at all. I just mean that as the role of the teacher to present thoughts, ideas, information, especially in guidance, uh, modeling, example, pre to present all these and stand back and let the student discover the, all these things for himself or herself, uh, to let the student learn. When I'm teaching now online, I teach a course uh, regularly online on what I call soul psychology. And um, so when I do that, uh, I, I give readings to my students uh, every week, short readings, very, very short. and. Uh, what I, want, what I hope they do is they discover that other people have explored these thoughts and ideas and have come up with very rich uh, understandings of them. So what I want to do is let the, let the students learn. I don't want to teach them. I, want, I don't want to tell them what to think. I tell my students that when they come into my class, I have two basic principles. Um, friendship and pleasure. I hope that they are friends, they become friends with each other as they learn, and I hope they become friends with me and that they find pleasure in learning. And that's different from the way many of us have been taught. I, if I look back on my history in school, I don't think I'd say it was for pleasure. So there's an emptying out there too, the emptying out of the teacher. And I say the same, I think this is a good moment to bring this up. I say the same about parents. It's so important for parents to be empty at times. Uh, they may, the, the kids might do something and you might want to tell them how they should behave and straighten them out. 
But, you know, the point as a parent is not to make, <clears throat> not to make little copies of yourself and your children, but to let them be themselves. So that requires an emptying out of yourself. And as parent, teacher, business leader, things like that, even politicians, I think they should all learn to empty themselves. And this is a particular kind of emptiness. Let me be a little teacher now. So when I use this word emptiness, I'm thinking about the way emptiness is taught in the East, in Japan, in China, uh, in India. It, it, it's there sometimes called shunyata, especially in India, shunyata. That's their term for it. It is a very, very special uh, spiritual kind of emptying of self and emptying of intention and uh, that sort of thing. A non-attachment, that kind of thing. No self. That's all part of this philosophy of the East. And what I'm doing is trying to bring it down home for people in other parts of the world so that they can bring some of that emptiness into their lives. There's another kind of emptiness that is described in the uh, New Testament, in the, in the letters of uh, Paul. And the word Greek word used there is kenosis. That's, and that means emptying of the self. Now, I think that applies to all of us, that we are in situations like parents and teachers where we have to empty ourselves of a self. That means not having to make people parrot what we say or do what we tell them to do. There's so much self there in the parent or the teacher. If you can empty that out, like in a kenosis, a daily ordinary kenosis, emptying out of yourself, uh, then you allow people to be themselves. You allow your students to learn, not just get what you are trying to give them, but to learn for themselves. And in the case of children, Parents can help their children grow up to be themselves rather than have to be forced to be what the parent wants to be. And I'm telling you, I hear this always, all the time in therapy today. In fact, just yesterday, I had a client tell me how his father, and it's often the fathers that do this, that his father would, would criticize everything he did that was spontaneous and him trying to make sense of his life. I think, you know, it's time for parents to empty that, empty that need to, to, to control the children so much, especially to make them models of who you are, copies of who you are. A little sermon there, sorry. No, that's wonderful. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, that is probably one of the biggest qualms that most children have of their parents is that kind of criticism. It was never, I was never good enough for them. Exactly. Yeah. Not that I know how that feels. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were talking about this teaching of emptiness from the Eastern traditions. And, and one of the, the stories and poems that I really touched me was the um, from the chapter titled Rotting Bamboo on page 93 with the Zen nun Chiono. I'm wondering if you could share that with us. Yes. Yes, this is really a beautiful, this is also a poem I've been reading for years. 
guiding me. These poems and, uh, from the Zen tradition and from the Sufis, they, they guide me so much. Although later we'll talk about how other traditions also do the same. So uh, the Zen nun Chiono studied Zen and practiced meditation for a long time without getting anywhere. One night when the moon was big, she carried water in an old bucket bound with bamboo. The bamboo broke and the bottom of the bucket fell off. And in that instant, Chiono was liberated. To mark the moment, she wrote this poem. I did everything to keep the bucket from breaking because the bamboo was rotting and would soon give out. Finally, the bottom gave way. No water in the bucket, no moon in the water. It's a beautiful poem. Uh, and I think it's, you know, uh, I think it's fairly clear that in our lives, there are, there are many things that may take a while to realize are rotting. For example, you know, maybe a lot of people come to a point where they feel their career is rotting. Their job is rotting. It's getting rot rotten. It's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not growing. It doesn't have the, any sign of its vit youthful vitality anymore. And a lot of people just continue to remain in that position, that attitude. And years go by and they, they, they know there's something wrong in their life. They feel empty in the bad sense. They feel that uh, something is wrong. They may have uh, symptoms of uh, loneliness, depression, um, pain, you know, a different uh, manifestations of this. Their relationships might be in trouble. So what they don't see is that something is rotten here. Something is rotting. And uh, if you can notice that and realize that it's just part of life, Th things do that. They, they get rotten and it's time to find a replacement or something new. Maybe it's time to get a new job. Maybe it's time to move to a different place. Maybe it's time even for some people, it's time to assess the relationship you're in. And, or if you know that it's rotten, to do something about it. Uh, this is based on a very important point, I think, that I get from one of my teachers, uh, Rafael Lopez Pedraza, who was from uh, uh, Venezuela, and uh, a wonderful teacher, and he said, he said that the psyche needs to move. And that, that movement is what we're looking for in psyche. That's the point in therapy. It's not to solve problems, but to help the psyche move. move. And uh, I think that's an important point. And that's a part of the, the idea of this uh, poem about the riding bamboo. The bucket's going to fall out and you know, what, what she says is that the moon, the moon, of course, has been reflecting in the bucket. So the moon is in the bucket. And that means that the whole world is involved in this. Your whole world is at stake. There are times when you just have to make a change and realize that something is rotten and do something about it. And uh, I think that's, 
that's a beautiful little aspect of this poem that the moon is carried in your bucket. So when, you know, it's only your job, but your whole life is involved and maybe your relationships, your family, there's much more involved than you think. So it's not just yourself. So then let's keep it moving. Let's, let's have movement in life, not be static. And look around and ask yourself sometimes, have I been doing this too long? Have I been living here too long? Sometimes it's, the answer is going to be no. It's great to be in the same place for a long time. Other times you'll say, you know, something's rotten here. The bamboo is rotting. So you go back and read this poem and it may inspire you. I just want to remind our live audience that um, Thomas Moore will be addressing some of your questions. So go ahead and type those into the comments or chat field on YouTube and we'll address uh, some of those shortly. What you were just saying, Thomas, reminded me of, I can't remember where it was in the book, but you talked about the difference between trying to solve somebody's problem and just letting them, listening to them, deeply listening. Is that a way to get, keep the psyche moving? Is that? Yes, it is. Obviously it is, I think, because what you're doing there is uh, you're giving a space for a person to think and maybe say things. You have to be patient. Like I, I know as a therapist when I'm talking to somebody and they may come to the end of a statement, something they've described about their life. And if I continue, if I comment on it and say something about it, that will end that little segment. But if I remain silent, usually what happens is that people add something to it. There's almost always more to it. And if I'm not silent, that more won't come forward. And that more that comes, I can tell you is very often very valuable. That's a valuable addition that because what they've done, they've come to a point where they're comfortable having said what they did. The next step is going to take some, they'll probably be more revealing, something that will come from a deeper place. That's almost always the case, I think. So it's very important for me to be quiet at the right moments, to sort of an, an, have an intuition, use my intuition a great deal. Is this a moment where it's important for me to be quiet? Not always, but sometimes when I am, if I don't say anything, even though I'm tempted to make a comment, uh, more will come forward and that will be much more valuable than if I go, you know, go in and say something. I think that's true in our daily conversations. Imagine if once in a while you had the skill of not speaking. This is the eloquence of silence part of this book. What if you had the skill of not speaking and it could allow somebody to maybe say more than they normally would because they have, a, they have an opening. They have some space, they have some empty space there that they can then uh, uh, add to what they wanted to say. And if you don't allow the space, they don't, there's no way that they can pursue it and go further. It's very important in our daily conversations to allow some space. Let's say a parent, the child is trying to, is crying and very upset, trying to express himself and can't do it. Imagine instead of 
berating them or even encouraging them. You just maybe sat down as a signal that you're going to listen. And then you, you remain quiet. Let the child speak. That could be that could really change the whole method you have for raising children, for raising your children, to learn when to be quiet, when to have make a gesture of openness, that emptiness that a person the child can say something and maybe do something, or maybe just continue crying. That may be important too. So your 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 job is not to do things all the time. Certainly not to say things all the time. Parents say way too much. But to be able to have that moment when you can allow the child to show who they are and what's going on. I know for myself, when I started doing these interviews, I really had to learn the value of keeping quiet and giving space for maybe maybe you weren't done saying what you needed to say there. So a pause can go a long way. Well, you've been doing that today, and I uh, I uh, feel it, I sense it, and I appreciate it very much. It's unusual. Normally, when I'm speaking, like in a situation like this, I may want to say more, but the interviewer goes on quickly because it seems they're anxious to keep things moving. Uh, and you haven't done that today, and I feel it. I know that's happening, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks, Thomas. Uh, we've got some some nice questions rolling in here from the audience, um, and if if we can, I'd like to address some. There, there's one here from Gordon, who says, "Thomas Moore, I'm 41, and have never been married or had a relationship yet. This makes me feel empty. What could I do about it?" Well, uh, what if we do what I was talking about before, and you go with the symptom? So it makes you feel empty that you haven't had a relationship. Um, I would not try. I would not get excited to try to uh, to get a relationship somehow. You know, desperately, uh, desperation is not going to help really. Uh, but you may want to talk about your feeling of feel, your feeling of emptiness because you don't have one. I can really appreciate that. So. <clears throat> I would suggest starting out, if it's possible, uh, I, to, you, might, you probably have a friend, friend you can talk to. If not, uh, you could find a, a good therapist. I have, a great, I have great faith in good therapy. I know it's not easy to find, but it's, uh, it's, there are a lot of good therapists around. Um, and talk to and just say, you know, it's okay, I guess. I don't. I don't, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it's okay. But uh, I feel empty because I, I haven't had a relationship and it seems strange to me. That's one thing you can do. In other words, stay with that symptom. Don't rush into a solution. That is, the, that is what emptiness means. It takes so many different forms. And it may just be a little dose of emptiness. You don't need to have your whole life empty. Just a dose goes a long way. And you might just be able to express that. Give it some, give it some expression, some honor. Honor it. Honor that, that feeling that you're having. That might be a good starting point. Because if you rush into it without the empty moment of reflection, 
uh, it's a good chance that you'll just be wasting time coming up with solutions. There's another question here from P.H. Pime, who says, I am still in a period of grieving after losing a life partner. As a writer, I want to transform my grief through a writing practice. How might I move forward with this? That's really good. I'm very sorry <clears throat> about that feeling. I know, I know all of us, you know, probably most of us anyway have lost people who are significant. I think of my parents every day. And, uh, you know, my friend James Hillman, you know, it's like he died just yesterday and I, and I want to talk to him. I want to call him up on the phone. Uh, I know it's very difficult. Um, and writing about it is a transformation of those feelings or in the best sense of the word, the alchemical sense, if you understand any of Jung, the alchemical sense would mean a, a, a really deep, solid, and valuable transformation of those feelings into, or sublimation, the alchemists use that word, sublimatio, a sublimation of those feelings into another form that is, uh, <clears throat> that is uh, bigger in the sense it reaches more people. Also, finding more words for it. Words really are, are so valuable and important. I, I am so grateful that I'm a writer, that I've done that for my life, because it has allowed me to perform an alchemy on my own experiences from over the years, especially the painful ones. That's why I often write in my books about some of the difficult moments I've had. Um, it, it's, a, it's a sublimation of, in the good sense of my, of, of my, uh, my experiences, not meaning that they're going to they're gonna vanish, meaning that they reach a level where I can reflect on them more, and I uh, and something happens, then they change, and uh, eventually can handle those feelings. When they're raw, it's very difficult to, you know. The alchemists referred to the first substance they used. They recalled it prima materia, which means raw material. And when we have raw raw emotions, they're difficult to handle. But if we can perform some uh, processes, some alchemy on those emotions. We still have them, but they're at a level at which we can, we can, uh, we change and they change and we can live with them, live with those emotions better. It's not good to keep emotions at a raw place all the time. Jung was so inspired when he came up with the idea of alchemy having something to do with our emotions and with our psychology. So I would, I would, I would uh, uh, support you and uh, encourage you to write about the experience and not to try to do too much with it intentionally, but just write it and, and let the writing come out and stay close to the experience and close to your emotions. At the same time though, they will lift in the sense of sublimating. They will lift and reach a level where uh, you might be able to live with them better and, and also see that other people will be able to hear what you have to say because you have raised them to the level of language. And uh, I would suggest using beautiful language 
not just factual language. Don't just give the facts. Try to find beautiful language. And like write more poetically, even if it's prose. Uh, the more beautiful your language is, the more alchemy takes place. That would be very useful. I wish you luck. Both Gordon and P.H. Pime, who, who put forward the last two questions, have, have commented with thank you so much, Thomas, in the, in the chat field. So there's, there's a question here from M. Kelly, who says, and I know we touched on this a little bit at the start of the interview, but I think he's wanting to take it a little deeper. M. Kelly says, I think it very important to differentiate the existential experience of nothingness which activates nihilism, whereas emptiness can activate a paradoxical fullness not yet ripe. Say more, please. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, you're right. You're right with me. Absolutely. There's the what you know what uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, some of uh, his friends might describe as nothingness and emptiness, meaning nausea. I think that was the word he used sort of a philosophical nausea uh, of, of nothingness. Um, Camus uh, gave us some of those, uh, those uh, feelings in his writings. And that's not what this is about, although it could be related in the way I mentioned before. A, a solution to nausea, philosophical nausea, might be uh, emptiness, uh, shunyata, that kind of a spiritual emptiness. It's a different kind of emptiness altogether, and yet it's somewhat related. I have a feeling that when the existentialists, uh, we're talking about people probably writing their books in the 1950s, that's my era to some extent, <laughs> my high school years anyway, and uh, uh, we don't think that way too much anymore. I, uh, you do, of course, but um, I think that... Uh, uh, that, that kind of a feeling that our, our world is falling apart. I think we do have that feeling today, different from the existentialists, but many people today, and, and myself at the moment certainly, have the feeling that it's hopeless, that we have such ignorance and so much self-absorption, uh, self-interest throughout the world, you can't survive that way. We are a community of beings on this planet that have to live and work together and enjoy each other's company and our differences, cultural differences and different ways of thinking about things. We have to appreciate all that, have a, a real community on this planet and we don't. And that can create, I think, at least I feel it many times, a kind of emptiness. I worry about my fellow citizens in my country. I, I can't believe how so many of them are, to me, deluded by, uh, by current philosophies. Um, so they, they, you feel that the, your culture is empty and the life around you is empty. Um, I think maybe that's why the, uh, the uh, existentialists, that's what they were getting at to some extent. And uh, so that's not the emptiness I'm talking about. I'm talking about a, an emptiness that brings life, that allows room for life to happen, where you get the ego out of the way, the self gets out of the way. We use these terms so much, and in psychology, ego psychology, all of that stuff, 
have they never read the Eastern philosophies? If you haven't, if you're a psychologist and never read any Zen Buddhism, get out of there. You haven't been educated enough. This is a world we live in now, not just a little, you know, European, Eurocentric space that we have. You've got to be in all the world and learn from the rest of the world. And not only that, but we also have had philosophies of emptiness in our in our own in our Western world. And uh, 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 this is something I wanted to say before we we finish today is that. Uh, I did mention the uh, kenosis from the New Testament, but I think Jesus taught emptiness too. He said the first will be last. Well, he's trying to encourage people not to be always trying to be in charge and be the first. And he, it's a mother who tells him, please make my, my children, my boys here, put them in the top of your list. And that's when he says the first will be last. You, why, be careful what you ask for. Don't always try to be everything. Don't try to be top dog. Uh, emptiness can take the form of humility, good humility, a real solid humility of saying, okay, I can be a servant. I don't have to be the master. I can be a servant. I can serve. I would hope that politicians really deep in their hearts have that feeling. They say it, but I don't always believe it, that they're there to serve not themselves, but the people who voted them in. That's emptiness. There's an emptiness of self involved in that approach to democracy. And if you don't get that, then it's not going to work. So uh, I think that uh, uh, there is a, uh, there's a way in which today in our daily lives we can empty ourselves in order to have a fullness. And believe me, people who empty themselves have a very rich life. It's not a literal emptying out of making life, you know, uh, uh, um, have no meaning and no joy, just the opposite. This kind of emptiness invites joy in. Thomas, I think we have time for one more audience question. And this is, this is, we get this question in different forms with a lot of our guests. I'm, I'm very curious to hear your perspective on it. This is from Christina who says, any advice on climate grief? Seems like it's impossible to make a difference. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, when it comes to the climate, uh, the responding compassionately to the to the planet. I think what, to me at least, I don't know if everyone else feels as I do, but to me it's important to have a vision, a philosophy, uh, a way of thinking about things, a big way. Uh, today, most people think in very technical terms, very small terms. Even environmentalists, I think, get caught in thinking of small terms. They think of the planet and only the uh, resources and uh, uh, the mechanics of how the planet works. But the, at, a, at a bigger level, this planet is a mother. It's a, it's a mother to us that gave birth to us. Unless it's true, and I'm fairly open to it, that other, other aliens somewhere, you know, planted us here. That's possible, certainly. But even so, 
This earth has mothered us. I think it probably it probably gave birth to us. So we have to, I think our images and our stories, our cosmology, which means our, our view of the world, our philosophy of the world, our mythology of how the world works in bigger terms than just science. If we stick within science, I don't think we're going to find our way out of this. So we have to be able to uh, have a bigger mythic view of the world we live in so that our hearts are engaged. If our hearts are engaged, if it's only a mind game for us, we're not going to get there. We have to love this planet. We have to love it. We have to, we have, to have a story about it that's big enough and inspiring enough that we are really going to love it. I think we've had scientists who have really, we've had a lot of scientists. Um, I quote uh, Teilhard de Chardin, the, the, the Catholic priest who was a scientist, who developed a whole philosophy, a, a mythology, his own mythology of the earth becoming more spiritual as it evolved. He talked about a spiritual evolution. I was, I was very inspired by him, Teilhard de Chardin, in my uh, younger days, in my college years. I was very inspired because he gave a mythology of the, of the planet, of the world, we, you know, the planet. And I think he could inspire us to certainly to take care of our, our uh, environment. And uh, other people have also created uh, these kinds of, I remember listening to Buckminster Fuller, who was a scientist, but he had a, he had a mythic point of view. He had a myth about, about the world, about how, what the world is like. Thomas Berry, I met him once and, and was very inspired just talking to him once, conversation with him uh, about the environment. And he also, I think, had a more mythological view of, uh, of the world that we live in. And the poets who are environmentalists like Wendell Berry and uh, Gary Snyder and, uh, um, and Jane Hirschfield, uh, these uh, these poets who are very in tune with the with the world in a very big way um, give us a mythological view of the earth we live in. That's that is a story about the the way the world is that we can love. We can love this place we live in, and we can imagine it as a mother. Um, also, um, I have a very good friend, uh, Stefan Harding, in England, who is writing books, one of his books is called Animate Earth. That means the earth with a soul. And uh, he, he's, he works with the Gaia hypothesis that the earth is an organism. And he and I are working to try to push the Gaia just a little further into the soul and to work with soul. The earth has a soul. That can inspire us to be there. So this is my point. We need to have a bigger vision and one that is full of heart and imagination and at root uh, has a deep spirituality in it. We need that. We are spiritual beings as well as uh, ordinary you know, organisms. We are spiritual beings. Um, I, uh, Ross, I have a question here on, on the chat. Should I answer that? Do Absolutely, have, sure. Yeah. You have time for if that? you have time, that's great. Do you have, I have lots of time. Uh, do you have thoughts on how to build self-worth? Um, 
I want I wanted to respond to that because self-worth is such an important thing. Because I'm talking here about emptiness and emptying yourself. Uh, I think there's an odd paradoxical way in which this idea of emptiness and self-emptying can, can help self-worth. Because self-worth doesn't come from uh, an ego place. Uh, you could, I think if you could expand your notion of who you are and what your world is, to realize that by reaching out toward other people is better for yourself than trying to build up this ego sense, this limited sense of who you are, but understand the paradox that by going out to somebody else, just doing something of kind of a giving to the world, giving to your world, to your family, to your to your uh, the people in your neighborhood, just doing that will help your self worth. I think because you understand that self is not an ego; it's not this limited small thing. It's more it's more the the muscle with which you engage the world and which you are expanding all the time. If you have that expansion going on, expansion of who you are, by by uh, being present to other people, that is going to, I think, increase your self-worth much better than focusing in on yourself and going to workshops and things like that to feel better about yourself. That, I don't think that's a good way to do it. The way to do it is to, to go out to realize this is the nature of the self. It's to be engaged. That's why love is so important. It's the center of Christianity, believe it or not. You don't see that much in Christianity these days, but that, you know, the original gospel source is about love. That's what this is, that yourself is going to expand and become more precious as you act on love. Now it can be by love, I don't mean a gushing emotion. I feel it, I tell you, when I write my books, I feel some love. When I do therapy, I feel love. Some love is friendship love. The Greeks called it philia, like Philadelphia, philia. And, uh, and that kind of love is real love. So if you can befriend the world, I would say treat everybody you meet as a, in, not as a friend exactly, but in the mode of friendship. I hope you understand me there. What I'm trying to say, don't, not everybody can be your personal friend, but you can act from friendship, from that, from that place, and from the love that is friendship. I do that when I, when I go to a store, believe it or not. When I go to a store, I try to establish a momentary friendship with the clerk who is helping me. A momentary friendship. It's not going to last. It's friendship love. It's a form of love. When the people come to my door, I really do this. My family will, would tell you. Uh, for a while, we had this person coming to our door, a delivery person, and she was uh, looked quite depressed. I made it my job to help her with her depression. I, I didn't pretend I was her therapist, but when she came, I would say things to her to establish a momentary friendship, a kind of love in that interaction. That 
that is not just to make, and it's not phony. I know you may, people can make fun of that. I really mean this based on my studies in Epicurus, Epicurean philosophy, and the whole history of friendship. And it's been written about for, for centuries. And if we could do that, that self has got to be helped by that. Yourself, your self-worth. Not because you're making yourself a bigger thing, but because you are realizing that it expands. It goes out very concretely, very intentionally into the world. And that would that will help you a lot, I think. Thank you, Thomas, for taking the time to, to answer that one. Now, I wondered if we could close with um, something to do with James Hillman, who I know was a close friend uh, to you. Um, and you read this segment at his, po at, his um, at his funeral, you mentioned, which I believe was back in 2011. It's yes. on page 55, and you titled that chapter, We Are Left as Traces. Yes. Would you like me to read that passage? Please. Okay. This is, these are James Hillman's words. They come at the end of his book, Force of Character, about aging. Should I say something about him first? Yeah, please, let me say please, a word yeah, about please, him. Yeah. Uh, I called him Jim. Uh, uh, some people don't like that, but that's, that's what we call, that's what, who we were to each other, Jim and Tom. So uh, Jim was... Uh, uh, an unusual person, uh, he wrote a number of books. He was brilliant, gave many lectures. You can see him on YouTube these days. He's quite a bit on YouTube. He was, he was videoed quite a bit. Um, but he had a genius, absolute genius, for taking up an idea, anything, any issue, a problem, whatever it was, and really reimagine it to its core. Uh, I, I, I admired that constantly. And when I was with him as a friend, we would just go out to dinner or just go for walks or things like that. He loved baseball. We'd go watch baseball games. And he would always have a fresh idea about things. I'll give you just a tiny example, and this is not major or important, but just to show you how his mind worked. So we're, this was, I remember, in the when he first came to Dallas, where we were living a number of years ago. And uh, uh, he didn't drive at that time. He didn't drive much ever, I guess. And so I offered, when he first came, I said, Jim, I'll take you anywhere you want to go to get to know the city. If you're going to live here for a while, um, I'd be happy to show you. So he said, I'd like to see a ball game. I'd like to see a neighborhood ball game. So I said, okay, let's go looking for one. So we drove around and we saw these people playing, you know, young people playing baseball at a, at, a, at a baseball field in the city. So we parked and we got out and watched them for a while. And he said to me at that time, he said, what I like about baseball is that it's such an interior game. There's so much going on inside the people. They are, they are, they are having to think ahead like in chess, and they have to uh, 
they're trying to, uh, to ascertain, figure out what the other person is thinking. That will help them in, to win their game. They have to try to imagine the other person. That's such an important skill he's had to be able to get into some other person's frame of mind, to get into their interior life and to look for little signals maybe, what's going on. And then to, to play the game uh, with your body and understand that there's a lot of magic involved in playing magical catches and hits. And, and home run is such a, such a remarkable thing. It just inspires people. And what is that to the psyche? What is a home run to the psyche? So that's what he was talking to me about that first day. And I thought, wow, this is going to be really interesting hanging out with this guy. Because he could he he would see everything in relationship to the psyche or the soul. I, I came away thinking, calling him a naturalist of the psyche, meaning he was like someone who would go out looking at nature very closely. That's the way he was with the psyche. And uh, then uh, toward the end of his life, uh, one time I visited him and he told me that uh, he said, he said that when, I, when the doctors told me that my cancer couldn't be cured, he said, I suddenly felt a shock to the psyche. He didn't say, I felt I felt really disturbed. He didn't say that. He said, it wasn't a blow to me. He didn't talk me language. He said it was a shock to the psyche. That was, he was always interested in the psyche and took it very, you know, very, as very important. So with that in mind, here is the passage that he wrote at the end of uh, Force of Character. We are left as traces lasting in our very thinness, like the scarcely visible lines on a Chinese silkscreen, micro layers of pigment and carbon, which can yet portray the substantial profundities of a face. Lasting no longer than a little melody, a unique composition of disharmonious notes, yet echoing long after we are gone. This is the thinness of our aesthetic reality, this old, very dear image that is left and lasts. Thomas, what are the small traces that you would like to leave behind? <laughs> uh... Let's see. Um, I work in my writing as a writer. I, I don't know how successful I am, but I work to write beautiful books primarily. I'm not interested in giving information uh, or advice, really. Um, although I do feel myself sometimes as a therapist, as an author, and I'm doing therapy on, on a page. But I really don't want to leave advice or anything like that. I think there's something about beauty. Beauty, James Hillman and Plotinus, who was one of the first people to write about the soul. He wrote that. Not a, a, Plato did too, but I mean, Plotinus really made a description of the soul and the soulful life important. 
that was in the third century AD. And uh, so I, they talk about beauty. So beauty is kind of the sign that the soul is present. And all my career, I've been writing about soul. I know it's a difficult word and some people have maligned it in some ways, but it's a traditional word. You can go back to Plato, as I said, Plato and Aristotle, BC, writing before the time of Christ and uh, writing about soul because there's a sense this is the valuable part of who we are. And if we have a soul, if we live in a society that has a soul, the ancients said we are more human then. Soul gives us our humanity, which we desperately need. So that's related to beauty. So I try to get some beauty. Uh, all, all these years, my wife and I, was she's an artist, painter, and she and I have worked together to try to, to try to make our books physically beautiful. We've really made an effort. We, we've had to struggle with the publishers at times. And they've, some of them have, have really reluctantly allowed us to, for example, one time in my book, The Soul of Sex, we got, we got someone, a calligrapher, to write the title by hand in ink and transferred that to the book cover so that we would have hand in the cover, not just a computer computerized image. We've had paintings on covers. We've had my wife, uh, my wife's work on covers. Um, we try to find our favorite artist to be included in the book somehow. We try to make a beautiful, meaningful object as well. So the trace I would like one of the, there's two actually, but the first trace I would like to leave is beauty. I would hope people would have a sense of the beautiful somehow there. And the second one is humor. I'm not known for that. I know in my books because for some reason my humor doesn't get across. I'm, I'm an Irish American. Um, I spent a lot of time in Ireland. You can't get an Irish person to give you an answer to a question without some wit and humor in it just the way it is. And uh, this book of mine, this one now, The Eloquence of Silence, has some humor, some funny stories in it, I hope. And I've written, I've, I, one book I published was called The Guru of Golf, which I, these, those stories are funny to me. I, very few people have bought that book, but I read it and laugh at it. So I enjoy that, I laugh out loud. Humor is so important, uh, a decent, witty humor, I think, not an ugly humor. There's ugly humor too, but uh, really decent, witty humor is so important. So I would hope that the trace that people would find of me would be something beautiful and something humorous. Well, this book is truly that, Thomas More, The Eloquence of Silence. Surprising Wisdom and Tales of Emptiness. I found it both beautiful and funny and uh, deeply moving. And I, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time and being so generous with your time today. Well, thank you very much for, for doing a beautiful interview. I appreciate that too. And uh, I wish you well.
Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.